Thank you for waiting. We're now boarding all passengers on No Blackout Dates Airlines. All aboard No Blackout Dates to... Wait. Where the hell are we going? No Blackout Dates. Zero Blackout Dates. Good to see you. Good to see you. How you doing? Not for nothing really and truly all day long like 7-Eleven. I'm a notoriously fast and sloppy eater, and it's just something that I am too stupid to correct. The locals in Southeast Asia are eating KFC. You know, no wonder people hate tourists. You know, you're just like 40 of them in a herd going down the street with some idiots spewing out, you know, guide facts, which are usually 50% incorrect. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of No Blackout Dates. My name's Tim. I'm Eben. Today we have travel writer and tour guide extraordinaire Will McGuff on the show. Will guides long term by travel standpoints tours in hawaii of seven to ten days he takes groups across multiple islands to do multiple activities and uh, have multiple crazy experiences he also is a frequent contributor to many publications across the travel spectrum including matador network and uh, he's somebody that is going to kind of open your door on the back end of guided tours because everybody has a perception of them even if you've never been on one and he's going to tell you what's actually going on yeah, I'm a pretty staunch no guided tour person. I very much don't like them. Think they're a waste of money, waste of time. I think uh, Will might have converted me, but we'll see how it goes. Well, before we get in with Will, we're gonna do a hot take section. And my first one with you, still pulling from my epic uh, airbound brainstorming session, Evan. Would you ever become a snowbird? So would I ever move to a cold, uh, a warm weather climate in the winter and then come back? Uh, yeah, sure. Why not? Okay. Because it's, 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 it's interesting to see people that become snowbirds and you never really thought that they would, or, or, or you never really understood why they lived in a place where it snowed in the first place. If they're not, you know, into any of the outdoor activities that revolve around winter sports. Uh, it seems like, why don't you just emigrate full time? Yeah. If I had enough money to have two residences in two different places, then sure. I've always thought of the, the snowbird concept as being for older people. When you'd say snowbird, I think of like a 90-year-old Jewish man and his wife who live in Brooklyn and go down to Florida for the winter. And I also think of those people as moving down to Florida in like a timeshare. And I don't think people like do timeshares anymore. So I don't know. I don't know how practical it is, but I like the idea of spending the winter somewhere nice. Fair enough. And uh, question number two today. What part of flying makes you the most nervous? Is it the touchdown, the takeoff, the turbulence? Is there any part of the experience that you that you don't enjoy? I wouldn't say that nervous is the right word. I think the word is frustrated. And the part that frustrates me the most are other people and their behavior. And as we've talked about before, the gate lice phenomenon. So people who crowd the gate an hour before and get in line an hour before the flight even boards, the people who the second the plane lands, everyone just gets up from their seat to stand awkwardly in the middle of the aisle and crowd together, even though they're not going anywhere for 20 minutes, stuff like that. And that, I think, indirectly gives me anxiety. Don't get me started on lines. I think lines are, I've always said that if, if hell exists and if I were to die and go to hell, it would just be me standing in in a line waiting for something and never getting to the front of the line. And like every 20 minutes, they add a new person to the line in front of me. So you really never get any further. You're just in a line forever. That's hell to me. So when people create lines that don't need to be there, 
that's incredibly anxiety inducing and frustrating to me like the part that makes me nervous and it's probably unfounded because you know it's it's engineering and science that makes this happen is like right when you take off i always have this vision of the plane just going up and cresting and then coming back down in the field that's like half a mile away from the runway <laughs> i i've thought that too actually I, I think that's gone away a little bit for me um, I don't have any fear whatsoever on landing because to me, it's like you're landing, you're, you're one way or the other, we're going to land. It might be kind of a rocky one, but we're on the ground. That's good. Taking off is a little more nerve wracking for that exact reason you just said. And on a logical level, you know how safe it is. But I think the, the feeling of takeoff when your stomach kind of drops a little bit, when you really gain altitude, that that's, that's, it's a little uneasy for sure. And there's always that there's always that like woman next to you who's like furiously chewing gum and closing her eyes and like her knees bouncing and that that when I see people who do that and there's always someone who does that that actually does kind of make me nervous. I'm like, oh, does she know something I don't? Yeah, I I I usually now like I'll usually have my headphones on and I'm like listening to a podcast or some music, you know, and I'm honestly not even really paying attention, but there's always like a second or two where I'm like, oh, like this is happening right now. Do you like to listen to a certain kind of music when you're taking off? I always like to listen. If I have, I don't, I don't have a gigantic music library, but I always try to listen to like an like a, like an epic song that pumps me up like during takeoff <laughs> for some reason. That's a good idea. I only listen to one style of music, and increasingly, I only listen to like four bands in total. So I, I might have to branch out and try something epic while we're while I'm taking off next time. No, I mean it's, it doesn't matter. It's epic. I mean it's just like your favorite song or something. Just something gets you it's going. Okay. Well, that's what I got this week. All right. I got a few good door slammers for you today, Tim. Uh, number one, the last few years, I've noticed that it's become popular to refer to someone's husband, wife, girlfriend, boyfriend as partner instead of the more specific term. And I've noticed that you do this a lot too. Why? I think it's just a good way to not be wrong when you say something like that, right? Because you don't want to say like, oh, it might be... You might say girlfriend, but it's actually fiance, or you might say spouse when they're not married, but partner is always right. It doesn't matter the sexual preference, the sexual orientation, or the status of the relationship. Partner is always correct. So I think that is why. And I find that I use it only when I'm referring to other people. Like I don't ever call Alicia my partner. I call her my wife. But when I'm referring to other people's relationships, and particularly people I don't know very well, I, I say partner. And that's something new within the last few years, probably. I know. So I understand if it's someone you don't know well and you know they're in a relationship but not sure of their sexual orientation, uh, saying partner as respectful kind of catch-all. But I've noticed this primarily among people who do know the other person's relationship situation. They know it's a girlfriend or boyfriend and yet they still say partner. Where did this come from? Or they refer to their own girlfriend or wife as as a partner. So that's that's not about trying to play it safe or hedge your bets. That's just this new word that's kind of become a part of our vocabulary the last few years. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly when that started. I, I remember when I first started noticing it, which was uh, I remember looking at a friend's bio uh, on his company website where he worked. And this was probably, you know, four years ago or so. And it noted uh, in his bio that he had traveled the world with his partner. And I knew, I know him, he's one of my best friends, and I was also quite quite good friends with his girlfriend at the time. They're, they're no longer together, but I, it was interesting to me that he chose to use the word partner in written form. 
and that's when I first started paying attention to people using the the term partner more often. Yeah. No, no. Yeah, my assumption is that it's like it's a catch-all. You don't know what someone's status is. If they're dating a, a woman, but you think they're dating a man, you don't want to offend anybody. So that's what I thought it was. But when people started using it, which and that's fine, when people started using it to refer to relationships that they knew the status of or to themselves, that's when I was like, hold on here. This is this is a little different. And this is actually like this trend that I, I really didn't didn't understand and didn't uh didn't know was so deeply rooted in our vernacular. But all right, uh next question. We've talked about this a little bit before, but do you consider yourself a slow eater or a fast eater? And do other people consider you one or the other? Anybody that knows me well would laugh to hear you say that. I'm a notoriously fast and sloppy eater. And it's okay. something I've struggled with my entire life. And <laughs> my mother and every person I've ever dated have constantly hounded me on that. And it's just something that I am too stupid to correct, I guess. Well, we're here to support you. Uh, we're going to launch a GoFundMe for FED, a fast eaters disorder. Um, just people that just love food, just can't get enough of it. Because I'm the same way. I get so, I don't know about sloppy, but I get so much shit from people, especially when I travel with them, that I finish my food before the other person is even done with like two bites. And it's something, I'm, it's a complete, as you know, I'm sure it's something that's completely unconscious. I'm not trying to do that. I, I now consciously try to eat slow and I, I try to finish the same time as the other person. But I, it, it makes me feel like an absolute slob because I, try, I eat so fast, but it just happens all the time. And I, I get called out on it constantly. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, the times when I'm conscious of it and I try to not eat very fast and I try to slow down and put my hands on my napkin on my lap and and like be more conscious of that are the times when I'm not around the people I know well. So, you know, it's mostly when I'm on like a press trip right. or when I'm with somebody's family or something like that. But when I'm around, you know, my wife who I eat with every single day, I'm not even thinking about that. So she's constantly seeing me at my worst, you know, she's <laughs> constantly seeing the worst of it every time. Yeah. Maybe we'll start uh, FEA fast eaters anonymous for people like us who just really needed a support system to slow down, just take a breather, really relax, enjoy their, that's what people say. They say, why don't you just sit and enjoy your food? Right. I'm like, I am enjoying my food. That's why I'm eating so fast. It's not the, the speed has nothing to do with my level of enjoyment. So yeah, fast eaters anonymous you can email us. No blackoutdatespod at gmail.com sign up, let us know your story and we'll, uh, we'll be a little uh, support system for each other. Well, we're going to support ourselves through this talk with Will, and we will see you on the other side. We're here with Will McGuff, who is a travel writer for outlets such as Matador and Forbes, as well as a tour guide in Hawaii. And we're going to get quite into that on this, uh, this episode. But the first thing I want to know, Will, is that our story of meeting and becoming friends is is pretty unique to our industry, I would think. I, like, it's not going to happen all the time. Uh, so I want to know, let, I'll break down the story first. Okay, so we met, we are currently neighbors. When we met, we did not know this. We met in the Vancouver airport while waiting to board a flight to Smithers while we were both on the same press trip. Uh, neither of us having any knowledge that another person who had just bought a house in Palisade was going to be on that trip. 
what were your first thoughts when you found out that that was the case? Well, I kind of stereotyped you before, you know, because you know, when you show up on the press trip, you kind of look around at everybody and, you know, see who you could possibly be friends with based on what they're wearing and what they look like, their attitude. And uh, I don't know if anyone else has ever told you this, Tim, but you kind of look like a Colorado guy. So when I saw you in the airport, I was like, OK, this guy, I think he speaks my language. And then I remember, I mean, I don't know what your memory is like, but like kind of that fact finding stage where you're like, hey, you know, I'm Will, you know, okay, Tim, like, oh, where are you from, you know? And you were like, oh, Colorado. I'm like, cool, yeah, I, I you know, live there as well. And you know, I lived in Denver for a while, you know, and we just were narrowing this down until we get to this tiny little town of Palisades. So, I mean, I was shocked. I, that's the first time I've ever been traveling on a press trip where I met my neighbor, you know, before I met them from the town I lived in. So it was cool. <laughs> so what, what was it about Tim specifically visually when you saw him that made you realize this is a Colorado guy? Because this, this is an audio medium and we talk about it a lot, but people can't see Tim. So what is it about him? I mean, for me, it's it's the hat, you know, the hat with the little mountain on, just like he has right now, you know, the Burton, Burton hat, hat. Classic Burton hat, yeah. Classic Burton. I'm pretty sure he was wearing, you know, some kind of button-up collared shirt, maybe some, uh, you know, flannel pattering or something. And I don't know, but for me, it's really the hat. Well, I'll, I'll take it. I guess I there are worse things somebody could label me as than a Coloradan, I suppose, so I can't complain too much about that. That is what you are. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about, about tour guiding being a tour guide, I've never done it, but it's got to be an interesting thing because nearly everybody has been on a tour of some kind or another over the course of their life, but very few actually are the ones leading these tours. So I, I'm I'm curious as to what kind of a perspective that gives you on on travelers, on the general public, and on travel. Yeah, well, it's really amazing. I mean, okay, so just to back up a little bit. What I love about guiding or have come to love about it is, okay, so we're all writers here, right? And so you are going to write a travel story and your idea is to kind of help people experience a place through your writing. So you're describing a story or nowadays, you know, doing the lists and trying to point people in the right direction. But, you know, as a writer, you rarely get feedback. And if you do, it's some like asshole internet commenter that wants to nitpick at you or tell you, you know, why you're wrong or something. And so there's very little positive interaction with travelers. Uh, and for my opinion, just as a freelancer. So what I love about guiding is it's essentially travel writing in person where you are with someone every step of the way, you are holding their hand, you are able to show them a place through your own perspective and really guide their experience. And, uh, and I, I really enjoy that because then you see it on their face, you know, you see that light up, you see that aha moment where they get it. And, um, you know, every guide has its own different strategies and different techniques and different outlooks. And I just enjoy putting mine. You know, frankly, Tim, as you know, like writing now, travel writing is not what it used to be. There's very little room for putting your own perspective in there. Um, in fact, many outlets don't even want it. So it just becomes very generic in a sense as a writer. You're really not able to connect with your audience as much as I feel we used to be able to. So guiding is really the way for me where I'm finding I can express that. I can literally say like, here's what I think about this. Here's you know how I think you should set your expectation. And here's what I got out of it. And I'm going to share a personal story. And hopefully you're going to get something out of it too. So you guide a lot of different kinds of groups around Hawaii. It's not all kind of the same theme the same type of tour group every time it's always different correct yeah and you know there's two kinds of guides really you have you know your day guides who are doing a single experience and doing it over and over and over again think about like 
you know, a rafting day trip or a hiking tour or something like that. I'm most of the tours I'm guiding are seven to 10 days long. We visit multiple islands and I'm with them all the time. I stay with the hotels with them. I fly with them. So I'm basically an escort. Uh, and, uh, the tours range from, I've had groups of 35 to 40 high school kids, uh, all the way up to groups of, you know, 25, 30 senior citizens. Damn. So you're really with these people for quite a while. So you better really like these people. Yeah. I mean, they better really like me too. Right. So you're, you're trying to form a family as quickly as possible. And, uh, and it's, it's interesting because people, although they're in a group, most of the time, you know, the high school group, sometimes obviously they have connection before but most of the tours they're all just solo or you know couples traveling or then thrown into this melting pot with other people and so not only are you trying to relate to everyone individually but they're all trying to relate to each other individually which um yeah it can create some issues sometimes it can create a lot of fun uh and yeah but you're you're basically babysitting for seven to ten days so when has that not worked out i want specific examples names addresses Facebook profiles? Well, <laughs> some things are universal, right? Like you guys, I've heard on past episodes talk about a lot, like the asshole on the press trip, right? So there's always kind of that one person on the tour who fits the certain stereotype. So you're going to have your over worrier person who every day is going to come up to you and ask you about 30 questions about what you're going to do next and what time you're going to meet and how's it all going to work. And okay, we're going to get on the bus and then we're going to get off. And then what do we do when we get off the bus? Do we wait for you here? Da, da, da. You know, people who really need a lot of attention and handholding. And then you have your people that are always late. You have your uh, complainers who just want to like everything you do could have been better. And why did it rain for five minutes while we were on that hike? And uh, so you really have all these different people again and all coming together. And so, all right, which, which kind of example do you want? I mean, I've, I've got a lot, you know, I, high school kids, you know, are just the worst for being idiots. You know, I've had people stuck, stuck in elevators. Um, a trip I did right before the pandemic, two of the kids, you know, those like hot candies, there's like little, little balls you put in your mouth and they're like super, I forget what they're called. Yeah. Well, a bunch of the boys started to have like a contest with them. So they all put them in at the same time and two of them ended up throwing up on the bus <laughs> stuff that doesn't even have to do with anything. It's just people being people being people, man. And do you have a, you say you do like senior citizens, high school kids. Is there a kind of group that's your favorite? Well, variety is the spice of life. So I think if I did one in particular all the time, it would get, you get bored. Yeah. But you know, honestly, I, okay. So for Hawaii, like, Hawaii from the outside looks like a very simple place, right? Just like go to the beach, you know, surf, whatever, like very superficial. And for a long time, that's how Hawaii marketed itself. But it's really become, well, it always has been a complex, complex place. But now like the messaging is getting more complex where Hawaii wants people to come and they really want to express their culture. They want to talk about the history. They want to have travelers that actually give a shit instead of people that just want to come and like sip daiquiris or whatever, have a Mai Tai. And so uh, as a tour guide, we are encouraged by our companies and in some places required to give a lot of this context, culture, history. And obviously high school kids don't care. A lot of the young professionals, they don't care because they're too hungover from the night before and you're trying to chat them up on the bus. You know, all they want to do is put their headphones on and sleep. So I kind of actually like the older generations because they care. They come and they want to know stuff. They're here to learn. Um, some of the tours are actually quite interesting. We do uh, like we'll actually have we'll pair experiences with classroom work. So we'll have a volcanologist come in, give a two hour lecture, and then we go out and hike the volcano with that volcanologist. So you get 
kind of the dual perspective. So I enjoy that because, you know, then they care what I have to say. There's nothing worse than being a guide. Uh, I mean, at least as a writer, when you write someone, no one cares, then you don't see that. Right. So I guess that's a positive. But as a guide, when you have a lot to say and nobody cares, it's pretty obvious. You know, like people are talking over you on the bus. People are just like kind of spacing out, walking away from you. And you're like, cool. Well, you know, I'm putting myself into this and nobody cares. It's kind of like being a stand-up comedian and dropping the punchline and just silence. I've had that happen on the bus. You know, I, I always say what's worse, guide jokes or dad jokes, because guide jokes are just notorious for being really stupid and petty and having nothing to do with anything. And uh, But, you know, you throw them in and, yeah, you just have that silent bus where nobody says anything. Do you do that walking backwards thing? We've talked about this before. Do you do like when you're doing a tie, you walk backwards and then you're like, hey, guys, let me know if I'm about to fall into a ravine or something because it's up <laughs> to you. I don't know. Like, do you do that? Um, I have, you know, especially in the beginning, you know, when you're trying to like hoard the group together. But one of my biggest guiding strategies now is to try and not do that stuff because I think like as much as I, like I'm going to sound like a hypocrite because I, I do work in the industry and I do these like big group tours. Like one of the things I hate so much about it as a traveler, because I don't know, I consider myself a traveler and somebody that likes to just blend in and, you know, immerse in a destination. But that's kind of hard when you're, you know, you got 30 people and you roll up on like uh, basically a double decker tour bus. Right. And you pull into this little nature area and like 40 people spill off. Right. So you're not really blending in any of the time. So when we are walking through a place, I really try not to do the typical tour guide, walk backwards, hold up a sign like, OK, guys, you know, follow me. I try and make it as natural as possible. And if I am going to talk, you know, stop, gather everybody because, you know, you're really kind of a nuisance to people. It's like, you know, no wonder people hate tourists. You know, you're just like 40 of them in a herd going down the street with some idiot uh, spewing out, you know, guide facts, which are usually 50 percent incorrect. Do you do the counting off people on the bus to make sure you didn't lose anyone? Like every time they get on the bus, like count off one to 40? I do. Have you ever lost anyone? I've Okay, so no, I've never lost anybody where they're gone and uh, like accidentally left them. But I've intentionally left people behind, which is kind of even worse. We, <laughs> like a lot of the uh, tour companies, believe it or not, they have a no way policy because – you know, like some people are just, gen you know, always late and they'll show up 10, 15 minutes late. And this is a tour that everyone paid for individually. So, you know, you can't just hold the bus every time for a single person. Um, so, you know, you give them like the first day the courtesy, but then when they're late, you got to let them know. It's like, hey, we don't wait. And they think you're kidding. But then, you know, they roll down five, 10 minutes late and the bus is gone. And then they have to pay like 60 bucks to take a taxi or to catch up with you. And that, that pisses people off, you know, obviously. And which sucks because you're like working for tips and stuff. So you're not making any friends by doing that. Do you feel like as somebody who's been on a lot of these tours or led a lot of these tours, do you feel that that tours are an immersive way to see a place like Hawaii? Or is it more productive to kind of be an individual traveler and just do what you're interested in? What are, you, what are your thoughts there? And don't be swayed at all by your own personal bias <laughs> <laughs> i mean honestly no i mean I, I if for me as a traveler like i would probably never go on a tour like the ones i run it's not to say there's not value in them but for me like someone who just wants to fly a little bit under the radar and you know not necessarily be tied to a group of 30 people all the time i personally wouldn't do it i think there's value most of the people that come on the tour are sort of you know, in the younger age groups, they're pretty fresh and green rookie. Like one girl I just had on my tour was the first time she'd ever been on a plane in her life. 
you know, so in that sense for her, it gives her a lot of security, you know, and knowing that someone's going to be, you know, kind of with her every day, there's a program, but also some free time. So I think there's some value and security in that. I, I mean, I definitely think there's value in the guide, you know, in my knowledge and my uh, expertise and, you know, can tell people about the destination, point them in the right direction. But I think you can get that in a different way. I mean, you can go as a traveler and just kind of meet someone at the bar who's a local and they can kind of give you some insight. But the idea of like a seven to 10 day tour, I mean, what do you guys think? Have you ever been on a tour that big where you're with, you know, more than 15 people? Not for like 10 days. I have not been on a 10 day tour before. I guess I did when I was in eighth grade, I went to Washington DC on a tour like that actually, but that was the only time. I, I find this whole topic really interesting. I did a, a point counterpoint article recently with another coworker, uh, me arguing against guided tours and the other coworker arguing for them. And my main argument always seemed to come back to cost effectiveness because it always seems like these guided tours, if they say it's seven day, five, seven days, it costs like three times more money to have someone show you around an island that you could easily give in today's accessibility of information and convenience of transport, just do it yourself or with a group of your, your own friends. You have a lot more freedom that way. You have a lot more flexibility. You don't have to run the risk of being in a big group with people you don't like for seven days. So that's kind of my argument. Um, I was only on, I did one big group tour in Israel. It was like 30 people. And there was like three people I liked. I hung out with them the whole time. And you get herded like sheep onto this bus and you got to count off every time. That's a one, one through 30. Make sure they don't lose anyone. And it's just a, I don't know. It's just a whole ordeal. You know, it's you, you lose half the time you could spend exploring the place, dealing with the group dynamic and get, getting caught up in that group kind of hassle, I find. I mean, I agree. I mean, everything you said is kind of true. I, I mean, I try not to do like the the stupid tour guide stuff where it's like, okay, everyone, like you're number seven. So every time we get on, you say number seven, you know, I try and treat people like adults, but you're right. There is a, there's a lot of waste of time, but here's the thing. I mean, you're, you're an experienced traveler. You know, I think a lot of people that do these tours, you know, necessarily don't feel comfortable. Right. Um, so I, I guess there's value in it for that. But to your point, man, a lot of the things we do in Hawaii on the itineraries are not necessarily things that I would recommend a friend to do. But when you're traveling with 30 people, like you can't go to that hole in the wall restaurant because it's like you can't roll up with 30 people and get in and out in a half hour. Right. So you end up sort of, you know, you go to restaurants that can, you know, take a reservation and it can like, you know, you pre-order and you sit down at that restaurant. They can sit 30 people. They can deliver 30, you know, plates within a reasonable time. So you're really working within the constructs of that group. So I agree in that sense, you know, it's, it's limiting. Exactly. Food, food and activity flexibility are two of the biggest things that I think are lost in guided tours. But I do understand for older travelers or for people who aren't as experienced and just really want to like pay, don't mind paying for the convenience. Um, I totally get that. I think it's, it is a lot more convenient. Everything's taken care of for you. Someone tells you where to go, you go there, when to wake up, you wake up, where to go for breakfast, you go there. So I, I do understand the convenience part of it. Has anybody ever called you out on a fact that you've told about a place and then started arguing with you about it? Um, yes, uh, guests have done that. But the worst is when your bus driver does that. I've had that happen a few times. I've, <laughs> I've had bus drivers not really like me that much for whatever reason. Um, in Hawaii, there's a little bit of like, because I'm not Hawaiian um, and I'm leading a tour of the island, sometimes people don't really like the way that looks or, you know, don't really give me the benefit of the doubt or a chance. 
So I've had bus drivers who will, I'll be, you know, on my mic, you know, talking about something and they will literally interrupt my speech in the middle of it. Uh, they'll come on their mic and they'll be like, oh, guys, guys, what he's saying is not right. And uh, da, 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 da. And they'll go off on whatever spiel and they'll completely cut me off in front of the guests and really try and throw me under the bus quite literally. And that's the worst, man. That I mean, <laughs> there's no recovering from that. And then, the, you know, the guests come up to you after and, you know, they're like, it's embarrassing. It can be, especially a lot of times I've had it in the past where the bus drivers were like nitpicks, something so small that you said where it's like, okay, man, if I'm wrong, you know, like, just let me know later. But yeah, they, uh, that's the worst thing that's been happened that happened to me. Uh, let's switch gears a little bit here and talk about, uh, Hawaii specifically, obviously a major tourist destination and one of the most popular destinations in the U S what's going to be different post COVID. Do you, is, is, are there going to be restriction differences or, or do you think there'll be like a vibe difference? Well, I think if uh, I think that time has passed, honestly, I would say if you went uh, six months ago or any time last year, I mean, the, the restrictions to get in were a little complicated. Um, but if you were able to do it last fall, I think you would have experienced a little bit of a different Hawaii because there were way less people there. I mean, way less, you know. One of the things that I always heard from friends who were still out there during the pandemic was just how great it was because they had their island back. You know, uh, Hawaii gets 10 million visitors a year and all of a sudden you take that out and the beaches aren't as crowded. The parks aren't as crowded. Uh, so you may have experienced a different vibe if you went six months ago. Now things are totally ramping up. I think what we're seeing now is kind of the shock and awe where for a year, you really didn't have any visitors to the island. And now they're coming back in full force and people... Um, kind of like the NBA we're seeing, like people are just like have been pent up and now just don't know how to act. Now you have people coming back to Hawaii who just, you know, they've always kind of seen it as a playground. And now they really are like just coming out and just like, hey, we want to do it. We want to go hard. And so I, I think it's just going to get even crazier, man. I think it's going to be it's like one of the most busiest years in Hawaii that we've seen in a while. It's nice, too, because for a while, Hawaii was the most complicated state to figure out their restrictions. Because for a while, I had to update this article like every two days with what islands, because every island had its own procedures for COVID. Every island had its own travel restrictions, um, inter-island travel versus traveling from the mainland versus international travel. And every two days, it would change. And I would I would get this like notification on Slack, like, oh, time to update the Hawaii piece again. I was like, oh, my God, like, fuck Hawaii. Seriously. Like, so it's good that it's it's a little more uniform and easy to figure out now. Yeah, to go to, to go do my guiding trip, I had to take a COVID test within 72 hours to get to Oahu. And then because I was staying there for a day or two for meetings, my tour was on the big island. I had to take another COVID test. So I had to pay $350 in COVID tests before I even you know got to my destination. And yeah, they had the vaccine program where it was only vaccines that were given in the state. So even though I was a resident, but I was vaccinated in Colorado, it didn't apply to me. Very confusing, man. But yeah, I think it's going to sort itself out in the next month. I would say they inter island travel. You no longer need a test for, so that's good. Okay, we're gonna uh, we're gonna move into our next section here, which is the listener questions. So we have a listener, a pool of listener questions. In fact, and we pick one that's tailored to the guest. And this one I think is gonna be right up your alley, Will. Uh, as somebody who who works with a guy, works as a guide, and travels with people who you have just met uh, on a regular basis. So the question is, what practices? can I employ to better travel with people who I've just met? Um, travel with edibles. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I mean, for me, like 
traveling is I like people, right? So I'm always like interested in their story. So my strategy is always just like ask people questions. You know, I put on my journalist hat. I'm like, okay, like I, I'm with this person. So we got to dig until we find something we have in common. So just ask people questions, you know, what do they want to do? Um, I don't know. What about you? What, what do you tell people? Like, I, I, it's really just about putting up with people, right? Is that, is that what he's asking? My tip generally is, yeah, like kind of what you said, asking questions and finding something in common because everybody has something in common with everybody else. And we're all, you know, we're all people. And when you're traveling, you're kind of after the same thing. So I, I think uh, tailoring conversations to something that is familiar to all involved and not, you know, leaving people out or not, uh, not, not trying to put yourself ahead or behind somebody else is, is going to be key. Yeah. In a similar vein, I would say, don't be that guy on the press trip, which there always is one who talks about all the places he's been. There's this one upsmanship that goes on among people that travel a lot to be like, well, like I've been to 40 countries or I've been to 50 countries. It's, it's not, no one cares. No one wants to hear about that press trip you did in Napa Valley. Like no one, literally no one gives a shit. So stop trying to like impress everyone in the group with how many places you've been because it's not going to endear you to anybody. Yeah. Put the ego to the side. I, that's uh, I think a great point, you know, and this question, you know, it's kind of vague, but like, I, I see like traveling partners are kind of like the roommate situation, right? Like you, everyone has that best friend. They'd be like, Oh, it'd be so cool to live together. Cause we're so cool. And uh, we're so tight. And then you move in together and you're like, dude, I can't stand this guy. Like, you know, he's messy or this is that, like he drives me crazy. So I, I don't think like all people are, even if you're friends kind of in everyday life or like coworkers and you get along, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be great travel partners. So really doing the work on the front end to, um, you know, if it's a situation where you can to like, okay, like really ask the questions about like what a day-to-day idea of travel is for that person. Cause there's nothing worse guys. I mean, we've all been on trips where people that, uh, you want to do this, they want to do that, or they complain about everything or, and it just makes for a miserable trip. You you just, it, it, the logistics go out the window. Cool. Well, well, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. It's funny. I, I, I'm looking at, uh, you know, kind of our, our video chat that we have going on here for the interview. And it's, I was, I was writing in my journal the other day, as lame as that sounds to say, I was doing this like exercise where you plan out the next five years of your life. And part of the exercise was to make a list of the, of the people that are closest to you right now at this time in your life. And both of you guys are on that list. And it's kind of cool to have you guys uh, in this, in this chat together. Oh, heck yeah. I mean, if I can, I just, I just have one little bone to pick with Evan. Um, because, uh, you know, I've heard on some of your past, uh, shows, like some of your, um, your traveling, uh, you know, things you like to do and where you like to eat. And I'll say like one of the most frustrating things for me as a guide, right. Is when people like me, well, kind of, um, people who do things like you do. So you spend all this time really like, okay, guys, we're in Hawaii, you know, like, here's like the cool things to do. And here, like, let me share with you all about this, like great food culture we have here, you know, like the poke and the Kahlua pork and the Lao Lao. And it's so great. And here's the restaurants that do it the best. And oh yeah, when you have your night free, go to this little mom and pop place. And then they're like, great, cool. And then I wake up the next morning and I see him at breakfast. I'm like, Hey, how was that restaurant? They're like, actually, we just ended up going to Jack in the box, you know? And, uh, (laughs) And nothing drives me crazy. I'm like, what? Like, why did you, why are you here in Hawaii if you're going to eat at Jack in the Box or McDonald's? People love to go to McDonald's. You know, they're like, oh, I got the spam, uh, whatever, McBiscuit. 
I'm like, oh, great, dude. You really uh, experienced it. And so I hear you're a big fast food guy when traveling. So I've just never been sold on it. So I got to hear what you got to say. I, yeah. So I guess all I have to say on this is I'm not – I wouldn't say I'm a big fast food guy when traveling. I'm not going to not eat what I want to eat just to satisfy this idea that there's this unwritten rule of travel that I can't eat certain foods when you're abroad. So what I, if I was traveling to Hawaii – would I seek out a McDonald's or a KFC? Absolutely not. But do I think it's kind of interesting to go to McDonald's and have the spam McDouble because that's a Hawaii thing? That to me is kind of a cultural experience. Yeah, but would you really call that a cultural experience? Like, oh, you can, can you get anywhere else in the country? It's a manufactured cultural experience. Exactly. It's a manufactured cultural experience. But honestly, a lot of experience are manufactured in travel. Let's be honest. Like I, I, took, a, I took a group zip lining the other day and uh, I actually told my office, I was like, I'm kind of against this because like we could do zip lining anywhere. We could go zip lining in Colorado. I mean, yeah, the scenery is different and but you're not really experiencing anything. You know, you're just it's an amusement park. Right. But you can't get a spam McDouble in Colorado. I guess I guess you're right, man. You got a point there. So you're saying that your time is better spent in Hawaii getting a spam McDouble than zip lining because that's more of a cultural experience, more unique to, to Hawaii. Right. <laughs> Maybe I would agree with you on that. Maybe you do have me there. Yeah, maybe there are some things that are worse, exactly. but I still don't think that's like a great idea necessarily. Right. To, to clarify, I'm kind of playing devil's advocate, but I mean, to clarify, I do eat like local food when I travel. I just don't go, I don't inconvenience myself the way that some other people might to eat the local food. Oh, I punish myself. Yeah, that's the way, like we had a, a, a woman on last week uh, Gina, who, who is a van lifer, and she said she's gotten food poisoning three times from street food and continues to eat street food because that's just like she loves like the local food and she loves it. To me, not worth it. If I'm going to Asia, if I'm going to wherever Africa and I have a choice between knowing that like my stomach's going to be okay and I'm going to feel healthy for the whole trip and eating KFC or risking that and eating street food, like the local street food, I will eat the KFC every time. Because that's it's just not the risk the risk reward ratio is not there for me. You always think you know what's best for people, right? So you're like, hey, like you need to try this and you need to do this in order to get the full experience. Like this is something you have to do as a guide, right? Yeah, as a guide, right? Like you, like I would tell you, like oh, you need to go to this restaurant, and I would be disappointed, you know, if you went to the McDonald's. But part of guiding, I mean, guiding is really just a customer service job. So. You have to kind of get over your own ego of like, I know what's best and really just kind of focus. So if I like knew that about you, maybe I would send you to McDonald's like as much as that would break my heart. But I would be like, this is going to give him the experience he wants. Right. And and, um, you know, like you were talking about how people torture themselves like, oh, I got to eat all the street food, you know, because that's what you do. And I'm kind of the same way. I, I really torture myself when it comes to that sort of thing. Put a lot of pressure on myself as a traveler to just try everything I can. But what I found, you know, like people that are on my tours, I have all these grand plans. But to them, sitting by the pool for a day in Hawaii is like it'll make their year. You know, it doesn't need to be more complicated than that. You know, people should be able to do that without feeling like they're being judged for doing that. To me, it comes down to, I don't know, telling people what to do and try having to adhere to these unwritten travel rules that are really restrictive. And people feel like they're going to incur judgment if they don't. So it's like, yeah, you might like local food, but there's 
to feel like you have to eat local food for every meal and you didn't really travel to the place is ridiculous to me. Or to feel like you can't sit by the pool for an afternoon because you're wasting the afternoon is ridiculous to me. It's like everyone should just live and let live, eat whatever you want. Street food, great. McDonald's, great. Everyone should just do whatever they want. That's my thesis. Yeah. The point is to have fun, right? Travel, like we forget that, you know, we, in the industry, it's all about, you know, it's so serious now with like, oh, sustainable and you got to, you know, tackle a destination a certain way. One thing that it's interesting, the guilt part, because what happens to me, you know, we always stay in Waikiki in Oahu just because of the sheer, like no, nobody else can handle our volume, kind of what I was alluding to earlier. And so then we travel to other parts of the islands and people on this rural farm, you know, we'll go for this farm tour and the, the guy will be like, oh, you know, where are you guys from and where are you staying? And they'll be like, oh, we're staying in Waikiki. And the guy will be like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. You know, and now we get back on the bus and the group's like, hey, what's wrong with staying in Waikiki? And then I'm in this position where I have to explain like, you know, and so people put their travel expectations on others and it can be it can be wrong. Like, I kind of agree with that. Yeah, it is a thing that you have to kind of address uh, the more you travel, whether or not you're going to succumb to the pressures of travel and, and to these things, because the entire idea of going somewhere new is to like have a change of perception. And like when you're putting pressure on yourself the whole time to like fulfill this perceived experience that you need to have, you're not really getting that perception. You're getting somebody else's perception. Right. And our whole idea is like, oh, you got to like be a local and blend in. Well, the locals aren't running themselves ragged. You know, they're just like relaxing. They're doing their daily thing. You know, they're not uh, running all over the place. So it's a little bit of a contradiction. The locals are at work. Right. Where the locals are. The locals in Southeast Asia are eating KFC. Yeah, that's true. So everyone knows. <laughs> I, I wrote an entire article about why KFC is so popular in Asia, actually. Why is it? Uh, because it's a cultural phenomenon. Like it, it signifies all, all, often when a KFC opens in a town uh, in, in a lot of places around the world, not even Asia in particular, but it's a signifier that your town has like reached a certain level. You've made it. If you have a KFC, you've made it. Like the interview I did for this story was with my buddy, John, who lived in rural uh, Western China for a year as an English teacher. And while he was there, uh, a KFC opened in this little village where he was living and they threw a parade to welcome the KFC to their town. That <laughs> I is love that. Amazing. I would have loved it as a traveler to be at that parade. I know. But that's funny. Like, because... I remember when, like one of the first times I went to Asia, I was like, you know, in my young traveler mindset, I'm like, I'm going to do, do whatever the locals do. And so I just kept asking around and literally everyone was like, I'm like, what do the locals do? And they're like, well, it's like 95 degrees in monsoon season. So everyone likes to go to the mall. <laughs> Man, I don't want to go to the mall. <laughs> so, yeah, it's funny. We have this perception of countries and maybe it's just us like idealizing them or, you know, we imagine like. You know, they're just living their life. They're going to the mall. They're going to the movies. They're chilling. They're working, eating KFC. And uh, so maybe like all travel is just made up, you know, it's just all the image that's sold. Certainly in Hawaii, that's what it is, you know? Yeah. We're all doing the exact same thing. Everyone in the world, is matter where you live, you're all doing the exact, you have the exact same routine. Like everyone asked me uh, living in Hawaii, like, uh, oh, it's like, do you go to the beach every day or surf every day? It's like, no, guys, I'm here with you. You know, it's like I'm working. <laughs> it's expensive to live here. And yeah, yeah in, in, in Oaxaca, uh, Alicia and I were there for, for a while. And early on, we were, you know, walking around Centro and trying to figure out, like, where is everybody? Where everybody we see are Americans or Europeans. And like, then we went to a movie and the movie theater was packed. Like, everybody in Oaxaca apparently goes to the movies on Sundays. That's like the thing to do. 
you know? So it was like every, we couldn't barely get a ticket to see a movie. Like it was packed. We had to wait in line for like 20 minutes. You want to get popcorn. That's another 45 minute line. Like the whole city was at interesting. The movie. Interesting. Is there like an equivalent for that in the U S like, do we, are we missing something? Like, I feel like, cause if someone visited Colorado, for example, like we do hike, we do ski, you know, a lot of the things like Colorado is pretty well represented. I think Colorado, the stereotype of Colorado is a hundred percent accurate to real life. The American stereotype, someone coming to the U S would expect us to all be, to all have guns, maybe to all have pickup trucks. Yeah. I think the, st- the U S stereotype is Texas. Yeah. Cowboys. And the people I've met are like, so like, do you, you know, you go shooting a lot? I'm like, no, I've never been shooting. <laughs> so I think that's, that's what they think we do. Ro- road trips. I think it's road trips. Road they, trips. Like- go to a rodeo. Hey, fun fact. Do you guys know uh, what the number one vacation destination for Hawaiians is? They call it the Ninth Island, and it's Las Vegas. That's funny. It's the number one travel destination for Hawaiians. And uh, I don't really know why. I've tried to figure it out and asked around. I think, I guess, just gambling and just debauchery. But there's like tons of direct flights there, and they literally call it the Ninth Island. So Hawaiians are really into gambling. Big gamblers. Bunch of degenerates. Oh, just total, you know, <laughs> I guess just the contrast, you know? Yeah, but it's funny. Yeah, interesting. interesting. Cool, Will. Well, thanks for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate it. Cheers, cheers, guys. Happy trails. Okay, well, we're here in the takeaways section after a nice chat with Will. Thanks, Will McGuff, for coming on. The first thing that stuck out to me about the talk today was something that's kind of like, under the seams of every single episode here. And that's that you should not let perceived travel expectations dictate your travels because not everybody wants the same thing out of visiting a destination. Yeah. That's my easily biggest pet peeve with travel. And we've talked about this ad nauseum, but I think it really came out today in in a good way. The unwritten rules of travel are complete bullshit. The, you have to eat this. You have to go here. You have to try this. No one cares. No one cares what you're doing. Just enjoy your trip the way you want to enjoy it. No one's judging you. And if they are, fuck them. Have the vacation that you want to have. That is all that matters. If you want to eat a KFC, eat a KFC. If you want to go to Hawaii and spend the whole day sitting by the pool, sit by the pool. Who cares? It's your trip. It's your money. Do what you want. Right. And then the next one is uh, that you shouldn't be too proud to book a tour guide or think that you're above doing that because you are essentially paying for somebody that has extensive knowledge of the place that you're going to see. And, and that can probably show you some things that you wouldn't see otherwise, or tell you some things that you wouldn't, wouldn't get that perspective without that person being there. Yeah. And I'm a pretty diehard, uh, defender of the idea that it's always better to just travel by yourself or not by yourself, but with your own friends or whoever, then sign up for a big group tour. And mainly that's, that's for financial reasons. Cause I just think it's a, it's just awful value, these guided tours. But I, I wouldn't say that Will converted me, but I do think he helped me understand the reasons behind why people do really like these guided tours, that they do offer like a, a degree of convenience that even I would really enjoy, I think, like not having to think about where you're going to go, how you're going to get there, what you're going to eat. They just kind of, you, you get great uh, expert advice from someone who really knows the island. So I think that there is really a benefit in that, especially for people that haven't traveled a ton before and just really like older people who really just want everything taken care of for them. And to see the place through the lens of someone else who is an expert, there is really a benefit to that, as long as you don't mind spending the money. Right, right. I agree. Uh, We'll close it there, but I want to leave the episode with with a forward-thinking thought that Will touched on 
as to why he really enjoys actually guiding older uh, visitors to Hawaii because they actually care and they're actually more interested in in the uh, the history and the and the culture around it rather than just going out or eating or whatever it is. And I'm it's going to be interesting to see you know listening to these episodes twenty years from now if our perspective on this stuff has changed, Evan. Right at our current stage of life, I don't think either of us are guided toward people. But you're right. I think that that easily could change as we get older and as we kind of want more. We're we're, we're over the whole. Oh, we're gonna be independent vagabonds and do do it do it alone and do these t- cool trips with all this flexibility and freedom, so we can structure our time the way we want to. It's like that's that's great, but I think as you get older, as I think as you get you settle down a little, maybe have a family, you I've come to appreciate the convenience a little bit more. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, Tim. I don't I don't like uh, I know that you just revealed to me earlier that you you're keeping a journal of what your next five years of your life is gonna look like. I don't know what the next three months of my life is going to look like. So this whole conversation is a little scary for me, but I do think that there's a, that there's a lot of sense in that. Right. By the way, Tim, what, what are the next five years of your life going to look like? I have no idea. I've learned nothing from my journal. In intricate detail, please. <laughs> we, the listeners want to know. Uh, I, I have no idea what it's going to look like. I don't know. I'm, I've always been more of a like, uh, figure it out and, and network my way into mm-hmm. the next step kind of a guy. So I don't really see that changing, but, uh, I guess we'll see in five years from now when we're on episode number like 272 uh, where I'm at in life. So we'll, we'll leave it there and uh, we'll see you guys next week. But in the meantime, head over to Apple. Let us know your most memorable guided tour experience, even if it was a bad one. And let us know where you think Tim is going to be in five years. Yeah. You can also email us at noblackoutdatespod at gmail.com. We'll see you next week.